Hey everyone, welcome back again. Laszlo Montgomery here on a Labor Day weekend here in the beautiful country. And for the first time since March 22nd, talking about something else besides the history of Xinjiang. I hope you all like that series. An instant classic, I'm told, in the history podcasting space, Xinjiang category. You know, I wanted to cover today's topic for a few reasons. First of all, with some people throughout American society being caught on video, playing fast and loose with the COVID-19-related trash-talking about Asian Americans, and some of the physical and verbal assaults against Asians, doesn't matter, American or otherwise, that we see on YouTube, TikTok, and other social media, you know, scrolling through our phones. Well, that was one reason why I felt that this was a timely topic, the story of what happened to Vincent Chin. But what really lit a fire under this one was that while President Trump was firing away with these loaded substitute words for the coronavirus, Vincent Chin's name kept popping up here and there. And in a few discussions with some Chinese and Chinese-American friends and colleagues, including all five who work for me, well, basically, they had no idea who he was. One of my friends that I spoke to was a member of one of the more well-known Chinese-American organizations. And I guess also a third reason, according to the statistics provided to me by my longtime and wonderful IAB-compliant podcast host, Libsyn, well, more than half of you are listening to this CHP episode somewhere outside of the USA. Perhaps your own country has its own Vincent Chin story. Well, this is ours. I remember the Vincent Chin case vividly. He was about my age, four years older. And when he was killed, I was one year out of college. My history and Chinese language degrees, and I was living out in L.A., self-studying Chinese, by reading the International Daily News, the Guoji Bao, one of the local Chinese-language papers in L.A. You know, that I subscribed to and you know, read every day to bone up on my character recognition. And this Vincent Chin case was a real big deal right at that time when I was reading that paper. His case was you know, front-page news every day. And as a result of this multi-layered tragedy that played out, it ended up galvanizing Asian-American communities in 50 states to join together to make their voices heard the good old-fashioned way, envisioned by the founders of the American nation through peaceful protest and to petition the U.S. government for a redress of grievances. This story of Vincent Chin went down in the summer of 1982, in June. Ebony and Ivory, Maka and Stevie Wonder, and that was the top song in the U.S. at the time. A few years earlier, in 1979, following the Iranian Revolution, the whole global oil supply chain was thrown into disarray, and the crisis was further exacerbated by goofs made by American energy regulators. Even me, your humble narrator, I too, personally queued up in those ridiculous gas lines in solidarity with my fellow panic buyers to fill up my tank or get whatever the quota of petrol was. This whole thing cost Jimmy Carter a second term. Reagan inherited this mess, and it dragged on for years. And tough economic times hit the USA. And the bad guy in all this was Japan. All throughout the 80s, one after the other, there were these angry and scary books published by experts and scholars warning of death by Japan. 
a nation that doesn't play by the rules. And the hysteria culminated later on in Michael Crichton's 1992 novel, Rising Sun, in the movie starring Sean Connery, Wesley Snipes, and one of my uh, cinema heroes, Harvey Keitel. Even I remember a, a genuine fear about where this was all heading. For the first time, many Americans wondered if our complacency allowed these Japanese, when we weren't looking, to sneak up behind us and kick us in the ass. And nothing symbolized this humiliation and all the dark thoughts that humiliation can conjure up more than the introduction and resounding success of Japanese-branded autos and their much better gas mileage into the U.S. market. And nobody felt it more than the auto workers of the great state of Michigan who worked at all the GM, Ford, Chrysler, and American Motors plants there, mostly around the Detroit area. Some cities are built around certain industries that become synonymous with their names, steel production in the city of Pittsburgh or Sheffield, England, and Detroit. That was the Motor City and, of course, the home of Motown. You had to know about Detroit in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s in order to fully appreciate the magnitude of its sudden and degrading demise beginning in 1979 in full view of the whole world. With gas prices the way they were, that was all the incentive American consumers needed to look for economy over ostentatiousness. Even me, after so many decades, I can still recall the outrage, the sheer vilification of Japan, and the news stories of angry Americans not enjoying munching on all that humble pie one bit, shaking their fist in the direction of Tokyo, thinking about all we had done for them since 1945, and now they embarrass us like this? Oh, it was an angry time, reminiscent of today in some ways, though not with Japan. There was quite a bit of outrage felt, but nowhere were Japanese more despised than in Detroit. What their success had meant to this city was profound. It completely changed it, mostly in the form of auto plant closures due to drops in sales. In June of 1982, this city, once known as the Paris of the Midwest, well, they were hurting with 17% unemployment. Americans who felt strongly about the matter vented in all kinds of ugly ways. But the bitter truth was, we had begun to feel too entitled and we let our guard down. And in the 1980s, we had to get up off the ground and go out and make America great again. Vincent Chin, Chen Guoren, he was born in southern Guangdong and was adopted from an orphanage at age six by his parents, David and Lily Chin, who at that time were living in the Detroit area. The Chinese character for their surname was the Mandarin Chen. David Chin had served in the U.S. military in China and ended up emigrating to the U.S. after the war. Vincent came along in 1961, and the Chin family remained in Detroit, and that's where Vincent was raised and spent his whole life, less than a half-hour drive from the headquarters at GM and Ford. His mother worked in a laundry, and his father worked at a restaurant, which I believe he owned. In other words, a pretty typical Guangdong Chinese post-war first-generation urban American family. I believe Lily was working at some brush factory in Detroit when Vincent was growing up. Lily Chin, 
Well, what is there to say? She was a real mengmu, a Chinese term to describe a mother who, like Mengzi's mom, whatever she did, she did it for her son. They didn't have a lot of money, but she did the best for her son. After a pretty normal 1960s, 1970s American upbringing, Vincent went to a trade school and became a draftsman. His sweetheart from the neighborhood was named Vicki Wong, and they were all set to get married on June 28, 1982. And to celebrate the occasion, Vincent and five or six of his closest friends decided to have a bachelor party. And the thinking was to descend on some good old-fashioned, proletarian, topless bar in the neighborhood and have themselves a Saturday night. And give Vincent a good send-off. The date was June 19, 1982. Paul had just turned 40 the day before. Vincent Chin was 27. And as he was getting ready to go that night, his mother, Lily Chin, warned him not to stay out too late. And, you know, that he was getting married soon and he shouldn't be going to these places anymore. He assured his mother. This was the last time going to one of these bars. The venue Vincent and his friends ended up at was called the Fancy Pants Club, located on Woodward Avenue in Highland Park, a district of Detroit. Vincent used to live around there. The sign above the entrance eh, touted a promising message, All Nude Sexy Show, Come and See. Well, Vincent and his friends went in and sat down near the stage, and like people do with these kind of joints, they all got nice and liquored up, and the dancers would come over and shake it a few times for tips. And after a while, a couple men entered the club. One was a Chrysler plant supervisor named Ronald Ebens, and the other was a stepson, Michael Nitz. They sat down near Vincent's table and started to join in the atmosphere. For this demographic, in this neighborhood, these kinds of strip clubs and topless bars were very common places to retire to after putting in your eight-hour shift at the auto plant. If you were management, eh, maybe you went to a country club or more upscale kind of joint. But if you were rank and file and punched a clock, yeah, these were the places. Detroit had a ton of them. And a quick drive across the Detroit River over in Windsor, Canada, eh, they had a whole other thing going on. Well, Ronald Ebens, I guess you could say up to this moment on June 19, 1982, the evening that his life went off the rails, well, he was good people. No stranger to the occasional barroom brawl, maybe a little strong-minded or opinionated. People might have been a little reserved around him or watched what they said, but certainly he wasn't what you'd call a killer. His recently laid-off stepson, too, Michael Nitz, pretty normal Detroit peoples. But Vincent Chin and Ronald Eben's lives collided suddenly after Vincent had just finished a lap dance with some girl, and I don't know, he said something, maybe in jest, who knows, that in so many words inferred that you know, this dancer wasn't so good at her job. And Ronald Ebens, who was close by, well, he said something. Maybe also in jest, inebriated men doing their trash talk, beating their chests. The essence of what Ebens had said was that eh, Vincent didn't know what he was talking about. The F word was used somewhere in the back and forth, which in these situations always throws another log in the fire. And what else? 
What else was muttered, quietly, but just loud enough to be heard, or something said but not vocalized or inferred with body language? Who knows? Whatever it was or wasn't, Vincent knew it when he heard it, or thought he knew what it was. Despite his friends trying to cool him down, he got up and approached Ron Ebens at his table. More angry words were exchanged, and out of nowhere, Vincent smacked him. Boom! Ebens would later call it a sucker punch when he wasn't looking or expecting it. Well, this predictably led to a melee in front of the stage, and in the heat of the moment, Michael Nitz got hit with a chair and was all bloodied, and the whole thing was broken up just as fast as it began. And let me just say, it's not like this kind of thing didn't happen all the time in bars across the entirety of the U.S. of A. Nobody got it on tape, but supposedly Ron Ebens made some remark about Asians, or Japanese being these MFs who were taking away all their jobs, and all this unemployment was due to them. Americans yelled these same accusations back in the 1870s about Chinese. Now, a hundred years later... They were saying the same thing about the Japanese, or just Asian Americans in general. Maybe a racist comment was made, maybe not. Witnesses said they heard it loud and clear. Certainly, later on in the night, after things had taken a violent turn, uh, Ebens let loose with more than a few ethnic slurs. After the violence had subsided and everyone went back to their corners, Vincent and his friends gathered their stuff and left. One of them came back into the Fancy Pants Club and went to Ron Eben's table and tried to do some diplomacy, apologize and whatnot, and explain the situation. But the heat was turned up way too high still. So he went back outside the Fancy Pants to meet up with Vincent and the group. And when Ronald Ebens and Michael Nitz decided they had had enough, they got up and left too and went to their car. Vincent and his friends were still in the parking lot. And a couple of drunk men, hell-bent on putting each other in their respective places, they went at it. Vincent asked him if he wanted to finish this fight right here and now. Ron Ebens went to his car, opened the trunk, and took out a baseball bat. As soon as he saw that, Vincent knew he was in trouble. He told Ebens if he wanted to fight, fine, but lose the bat. Ebens rushed him, and I'm guessing Vincent took one look in Ebens' eyes knew. He better turn and run for his life. He and his buddy, Jimmy Chu, they bolted. And Ebens tried to grab them, but they ran away. And quickly thereafter, he gave up the chase and went back to his car. One bystander who had been in the club was approached by Ebens to help hunt down those two. Ebens paid him 20 bucks for his effort. Then Nitz got behind the wheel of their car, and together with Ebens, they gave chase. They drove around the vicinity, trying to... Hunt Vincent down, Ebens, still hot from that altercation with Vincent, still completely unable to control his rage. And then he saw him. Vincent and his pal, Jimmy Choo, they were only a couple blocks or so away from the fancy pants outside of McDonald's. And Ebens will recall that, as he did a drive-by, Vincent saw him and taunted him from afar. And Ebens, eh, he just saw red and told Nitz to pull into the Mickey D's where Vincent and his friend were. As soon as Nitz put the car in park, Ebens grabbed the bat and went after Vincent. Vincent bolted down the street, but Ebens caught up with him and started wailing on him with his bat. And even after Vincent had 
crawled out into the middle of the street and was beaten unconscious. Eben still kept hitting him with that bat. An off-duty cop saw the whole thing, had to draw his gun to disarm Ebens. And Vincent, well, he wasn't dead yet, but he may as well have been. A strapping man of middle age, swinging a Jackie Robinson Louisville slugger with the full force of an enraged human being. Eh, He knew what he was doing. They took Vincent to Henry Ford Hospital, and he was hooked up to life support. I'm sure among the annals of amazing neurosurgeons and emergency room comebacks, there have been patients who survived wounds as traumatic as Vincent's. But there was no miracle that night for Vincent Chin. After four days of agony, Lily Chin, whose husband David had just passed away six months earlier, she had to resign herself to the unthinkable. Vincent was taken off a life support and passed away on June 24, 1982. His funeral was held on June 28th, the day he and Vicky were supposed to have been married. So you can imagine the magnitude of this tragedy. Think of Lily Chin, six months a widow, and now she loses her only son, her only child. Well, it was pretty cut and dried. Ronald Ebens knew he was going to have to do a long, hard stretch for this. Plenty of witnesses, including an off-duty cop, the blood of Vincent Chin on the weapon he was holding, no matter one's true intentions or state of mind at the time. This was going to be a tough one to prove innocence. Well, as far as what ended up happening to Ronald Ebens, who beat Vincent to death with that Louisville slugger, and Michael Nitz, who held Vincent down, well, I'm not going to get into it, but the American legal system, great as it is, sometimes isn't such a thing of beauty in the manner in which it operates in real life. A plea bargain agreement was reached between the attorneys, which whittled the charges down from second-degree murder to manslaughter, the unlawful killing of a human being without malice aforethought. When this whole thing started, Ronald Ebens hadn't meant to kill Vincent. You know, things happen, everything should have been taken into perspective. Ron and Michael, they pled guilty to manslaughter. Did they have the intent to kill Vincent? I guess you could say they did try and hunt Vincent down with the intent to do him harm. Not kill him, perhaps, but some kind of harm. Or just intimidate him, if they could. Teach him a lesson, the way some people feel duty-bound to do, in order to assuage their anger, or avenge some wrong committed against them. Anyway, the charges were manslaughter, and Ebens and Nitz appeared before Judge Charles Kaufman, of the Wayne County Circuit Court. And they were looking at 15 years in prison. And that's what the Asian community and other supporters of Vincent Chin were expecting. You know, all things considered, that is. It wasn't like the JFK assassination with so many unanswered questions, no grassy knolls. I mean, this one was conveniently an open and shut case. Judge Kaufman gave the two men a three-year suspended sentence, a $3,000 fine each, plus they had to pay various other court costs. A suspended sentence. A sentence of imprisonment Ebens and Nitz didn't have to serve as long as they didn't commit any further crimes during this three-year period. (laughs) That's even better than house arrest. And I guess in some ways, this is where the next part of the story begins. 
you know, not only amongst Asian Americans, but with other minority communities as well. They sounded off about this whole matter. And I could summarize it all by saying, well, they strongly questioned Judge Kaufman's decision. What was that all about? What an insulting decision. Well, till his dying day in 2004, Judge Kaufman never backpedaled on his decision. The way he saw it, these two guys, Ron Ebens and Michael Nitz, they were good people, no criminal record, and both had, quote, stable working backgrounds. <laughs> Gee, so did Vincent Chin. When asked why he didn't allow for more careful examination of the evidence and other things he chose to ignore, Kaufman had said he had to rule on 50 sentences a week, 200 a month, and 2,000 a year, and no one had the time and resources to subpoena the witnesses who saw everything. Kaufman was sort of indignant that his accusers couldn't see that in this legal system, the way it operated at this level, you had to churn them and burn them. No time to do deep dives on every case. Judge Kaufman didn't need to hear the other side of the story. He already listened to everything Ebens and Nitz's attorney told him, and that was everything he needed to know. Vincent had started it. Nuff said. The most memorable line associated with Judge Kaufman's decision was when he said in an interview, quote, I just don't think that putting them in prison would do any good for them or society. You don't make the punishment fit the crime. You make the punishment fit the criminal. And that was that. So I guess you could say Ronald Ebens and Michael Nitz were pretty relieved to beat that rap. They didn't have to do any hard time in the slammer. The only problem for them was that their nightmare was only entering a new phase. As I said, I was living in L.A. at the time and reading these Chinese newspapers every day. The story of what had happened in Detroit with the Vincent Chin case became national news in the U.S. However, the story eh, sort of came and went, but not in the Chinese press. It was front page every day. And because I was living in L.A., the local news in the Chinese community was dominated by the colorful future mayor of Monterey Park from 1983 to 84, Lily Li Chen. Don't confuse her with Vincent's mother, Lily Chin. This is Lily Li Chen. Today, a very close friend of mine and mentor, she was one of the leaders on the West Coast to send the call out and begin to organize Asian Americans. She had already achieved some success with the Asian Pacific Human Services Program she had championed working at the county of L.A., Besides Lily, another major force here on the West Coast who stepped forward was Stuart Kuo. He had been Lily's first volunteer for her social services program. And Lily also got Stuart involved with the Chinatown Service Center. And later on, she became the one who suggested he also organize some kind of organization to provide legal services to Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. He was in law, uh, Stuart was at law school in UCLA at the time. And this is where Stuart Kuo co-founded the Asia-Pacific American Legal Center in Southern California in 1982. And this organization provided legal aid and other forms of support to Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. He's a very respected and revered figure in the L.A. community. I've had the pleasure to have met him a couple times. So this all started with the Vincent Chin case. And over in Detroit was Helen Zia. Well, she wasn't from there. She was from Jersey. But that's where she was living in 1982, working as a journalist. 
She and fellow organizer and activist Liza Chen helped the bereaved and befuddled Lily Chin and her long quest for justice. You know, Lily Chin didn't have any fancy college degrees and just barely spoke English, but she had a lot to say. And for the next several years, throughout this ordeal, Helen Zia and Liza Chan looked after her and were Lily's spokespersons. Well, U.S. Bill of Rights, Fifth Amendment, you know how it goes. No person shall be subject for the same offense or twice be put in jeopardy of life or limb. No matter what, Ronald Ebens and Michael Nitz, they were off the hook. They couldn't be tried again for the killing of Vincent Chin. But if they could get someone in the United States Department of Justice to take a look at this, if the evidence was there, these two guys could be charged in a federal court for a civil rights violation. Well, I don't want to say that prior to Vincent Chin's killing, there were no pan-Asian American organizations in the U.S., but following Judge Kaufman's decision, that really was the moment where Asian Americans, not just Chinese, you know, who were mainly carrying the standard in this battle, they all learned the importance of coalition building and joining their numbers so that they could collectively engage the American political process. My friend Lily Li Chen, who at the time had just become the first Chinese-American woman to lead a city as mayor, well, she was a major proponent of building bridges with all communities, not just amongst Asian Americans. Following Vincent Chin's death and subsequent trial, Asian Americans in the early 1980s were energized and ready to stand up and Stop trying to lay low and not rock the boat. Many, for the first time, woke up to a new political consciousness. This was a pretty cut-and-dried case of manslaughter. Some would say murder, but clearly at least manslaughter. But as far as a racially motivated case, that wasn't so evident. Maybe was, maybe wasn't. I guess it all depends how you felt about it. Following Kaufman's decision, community leaders in both Detroit and in other cities started protesting, demonstrating, and writing their representatives in government demanding justice for Vincent Chin. On March 30th, 1983, American Citizens for Justice was formed in Detroit, and they led the fight to demand a retrial. This coalition of Asian Americans crossed their ethnic boundaries and shared resources, energy, and determination not to go quietly and accept what had just happened in Judge Charles Kaufman's courtroom. I know it's kind of shocking and uncomfortable for many to see the divisions in our American society today. All throughout 1983, the matter of race was also being argued, as it related to the Vincent Chin case. There were demonstrators and exhibitions of peaceful public outrage, and Ron Ebens and Michael Nitz and their families, they were carried away with the stormy aftermath of their good fortune following Judge Kaufman's decision. Their lives were essentially ruined. It's not like the whole community stood with the Asian American civil rights protesters. Ron Ebens had plenty of supporters. There were plenty of locals who saw nothing wrong in the Kaufman decision. And they were more than happy to hit the streets and launch their own counter-protests. You can bet some of the talk that got passed around that was used to Smear the protesters, their intentions, motives, and whatnot, eh, was laced with plenty of well-worn inferences to their 
Asian ethnic origins. Needless to say, society was quite divided, with some places being more divided than others, and as far as Asian Americans, at this time in U.S. history, in Detroit, as I said, emotions ran hot. And it didn't matter that Vincent wasn't Japanese and that he had nothing to do with Michael Nitz losing his job or any other Detroit auto worker. The way more than a few angry unemployed workers saw it, Vincent was just a symbol for all Asians. So Vincent's case went from being about a drunken brawl going awry to a civil rights case, now getting national exposure on the evening news. Organizers from coast to coast reached out to the media and gave this moment maximum coverage. Helen Zia was behind a microphone constantly in her role as the chief spokesperson of the movement. To Ebens and Nitz, she was their worst antagonizer. There was also a Justice for Vincent Chin national campaign, and big guns in the black community, such as Jesse Jackson, also lent their support and spoke out for justice. On and off, whenever the case was in the news, it was sensationalized at times. Whether this helped or hurt in Vincent's posthumous quest for justice, it's hard to say. Well, 1984, the case went to federal court. Ebens and Nitz's attorneys had strongly argued that this case had nothing to do with civil rights or racism or anything like that. And Ebens and Nitz were not racist, and everyone who knew them would attest to that. Vincent uh, had the dubious honor to become the first Asian-American whose case was prosecuted under the 1964 Civil Rights Act, signed under LBJ. Ebens and Nitz faced charges of conspiracy to violate the civil rights of Vincent Chin. And if convicted in this federal court, they were looking at a possible sentence of life in prison. Twelve jurors would listen to the arguments and decide. And when it was all over... Nitz was found not guilty on two counts, but Ronald Ebens was found guilty on one of the charges against him and sentenced to 25 years in prison. The case was appealed at once, and then finally, on May 1st, 1987, almost five years after Vincent's tragic end, the case was decided once and for all. The venue of the trial had been changed to Cincinnati, and there... Ronald Ebens was certain to get a more sympathetic jury, far removed from the emotions that had racked the Motor City since the Judge Kaufman decision. And the federal appellate court, in the end, found Ebens not guilty. Their decision had been that this was not a racially motivated crime. Well, Ronald Ebens finally beat this rap. The courts had spoken there were no other avenues open to prosecute him for this crime. On March 23, 1987, a civil suit brought against Ebens and Nitz was settled out of court. Nitz had to pay Lily Chin $50,000 in $30 weekly installments over 10 years. The judgment against Ebens was understandably a little bit more stiff. He was ordered to pay $1.5 million dollars at the rate of $200 per month for the first two years and 25% of his income, or $200 per month thereafter, whatever was the larger amount. Well, Ebens made some payments, but he fell behind as the whirlwind he was caught up in had led him from one low-paying job to the next, losing his happy family life and 
finally moving to Nevada where he had a better chance of hiding behind the law to protect his assets, which were meager indeed. Helen Zia continued to stand by Lily Chin's side and did not allow Ebens to seek relief from the courts to try and escape from his legal and financial predicament. The amount he owes now is something like over $8 million of principal and interest. In a June 2012 telephone interview, something Ebens rarely ever did, he said about the Vincent Chin case that it was, quote, the only wrong thing he had ever done in his life, end quote. He never had to serve a prison sentence for what he did to Vincent Chin, but Ronald Ebens ended up paying for his mistake in other ways. Like I said, this isn't just a story about Vincent Chin being denied justice. It's also about the organized political awakening that happened amongst Asian Americans. What happened to Vincent Chin became a rallying cry whenever Asian Americans were wrongly accused or were victimized by the American judicial system. I don't know how many organizations there are today that have sprung up coast to coast, but there's a lot. And I've met members from a few of them over the years. And another consequence of uh, Vincent's case was that what followed throughout the 1980s and into the 1990s was more federal protections and services to Asian Americans and legally recognizing them as a minority. Here in Los Angeles, Stuart Quo's Asian Americans Advancing Justice continues to advocate for all Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders, Helen Zia has written many great books and has spoken to so many public forums and created so much awareness you know, about this case and other issues you know, related to other topics. I saw her a few years ago in D.C. at a United Chinese Americans conference. Great speaker. I'll have links to several uh, resources in the show notes. Stuart Kuo had summed it up well when he said, quote, In the specific case of Vincent Chin... The final outcome repeated the tragedy of his murder. But the case and the intense mobilizing it precipitated set in motion forces that have been gathering in strength every year since then. End quote. You know, the sadness felt by so many people about Vincent Chin's death at such a young age, only 27, and being denied justice, not once, but twice. Well, that was tragic enough. But... But, you know, the final tragedy in the whole story of Vincent Chin was in June of 2002, when his mother, Lily, died of cancer in a Farmington Hills, Michigan hospital. When she was going through all the treatment and suffering so, well, she didn't have her son there to comfort her. And when she passed, there was no son who survived her to mourn her death. And the generations that perhaps might have followed Vincent and Vicky's marriage on June 28, 1982. Well, these future generations who never were, they too were part of this sad story. So at a time when many American communities from coast to coast are united in the Black Lives Matter movement, I wanted to mention that Asian Americans also had their own George Perry Floyd Jr., and when the law failed their community in the early 1980s, back when they were only 1.5% of the population, a new movement was born. Following Vincent Chin's death, the nation's discourse about civil rights made some room for the AAPI community. 
and Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Racism wasn't just a black and white thing, as popularly believed. It came in other colors. One more thing, filmmakers Christine Choi and Renee Tajima-Pena came out with a documentary released in 1989 that won a bunch of awards, got nominated for an Oscar, too. It was called Who Killed Vincent Chin? You could see it or rent it at all kinds of uh, online streaming services. I think there's uh, one or two floating around YouTube. All right, let's close up shop for now. A little morsel of Chinese-American history for you. I like to do this from time to time. May I make one more appeal? If you'd like to support me and my humble efforts to get all this good stuff out there to the whole English-speaking world, how about going to patreon.com slash China History Podcast and signing up for less than the price of a double-double at In-N-Out? Just the burger, not the combo. You can help me to keep this effort of mine going. You don't like Patreon? I also keep a begging bowl 24-7 at paypal.me slash China History Podcast. All links at the show notes at teacup.media. Okay, enough of this panhandling. Laszlo Montgomery here, signing off once again from the city of Los Angeles, here in the Golden State, hoping you'll join me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.